Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello, and welcome to Freedom of Species. My name is Roy Taylor, and I'm in the studio today, and we bring animal advocacy to the airwaves. Freedom of Species is a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. We are broadcasting from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, and stream live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available on the 3CR website, that's 3cr.org.au, and the Freedom of Species podcast website, freedomofspecies.org. And all our previous podcasts are available on iTunes. Now, in today's show, I'm going to be broadcasting an interview I did earlier in the week with Catherine Cadden and Kate Raffin two educators in the field of non-violent communication, they'll be talking about how non-violent communication, NVC, can help animal advocates. Hi, it's Patty Mark from Animal Liberation Victoria on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 a.m. I love community radio. It's so important we keep an independent voice out there, not only for the animals, but for all humans, for the environment. And make sure you listen to Freedom of Species. It's animal activism on the airways. Before we go to the uh, interview today, I'm just going to promote a couple of projects that I'm involved in personally. One is the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses, who have got a number of protests and events coming up in conjunction, or in opposition to, perhaps is better wording, the Spring Racing Carnival. For more information on that, go to horseracingkills.com. One of the things we're doing is asking people to get the back of the car, back window, spray uh, spray painted with the message, is the party really worth it? Horseracingkills.com. If you'd like information on that, email volunteers at horseracingkills.com and we'll tell you where you can go to uh, get um, your back window sprayed with a the biggest bump, effective with the biggest bumper sticker you can get. Uh, the other project I'm involved in that I'd like to promote today is the Animal Activists Forum, which is coming up in two weeks' time on the Gold Coast. This is a yearly meeting for animal advocates and uh, it involves over 30 workshops, lectures, discussions by animal advocates from all over Australia. 
It's going to be held at the Southport Community Centre. Tickets are on sale now, and they'll be closing in just over a week's time. So now is the time to book your ticket and get that flight booked to go to the Gold Coast and have a wonderful weekend networking with all the animal advocates from across the country. You'll meet people who will inspire you and allow you to share your knowledge and also learn from others and maybe create better networks in the movement that will facilitate more activism for animals. So for more information and to get tickets, go to activistsforum.com. What we'll do now is we'll go to the first part of a three-part interview I conducted with Catherine Cadden and Kate Raffin, who are educators in non-violent communication. This is going to be particularly as regards how it can benefit animal advocates. On the line, I've got uh, Kate Raffin and Catherine Cadden, both trainers in nonviolent communication. Kate, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, Roy. Um, My name is Kate Raffin and I live in Sydney and I'm a a certified uh, nonviolent communication trainer with the Centre for Nonviolent Communication. Um, And I'm also, I also work with... uh, conflict and um, I'm an accredited mediator and I also really enjoy working with uh, with youth and um, in with play in the wild uh, based in the US and Canada and also here in Australia uh, and I'm also an artist and make handbound books I really would love that if this call contributed to somebody that would be wonderful that's great and um, Catherine, could you introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, I'm Catherine Cadden. Um, right now in this moment, I'm sitting in my home in Vermont, USA, just about an hour south of the Canadian border. Um, and it, we've got frost on the ground. Um, and I've been involved with nonviolence consciously since I was about nine years old. Um, I grew up in a house where my brothers were very terrified of being drafted to go to Vietnam. So I learned very early on the importance of um, nonviolent activism. And so I've made that my life's work. I've run a school, a uh, K through eight, kindergarten through eighth grade program here in the United States, um, an alternative private school that was based on the tenets of nonviolence. Um, and there we integrated nonviolent communication. It was in 96 that I met Marshall Rosenberg, uh, the founder of nonviolent communication. And I had been working on a philosophy um, for education based on the tenets of nonviolence about direct action in love. Um, and I defined love as listening, observing, validating, and empathizing because I wanted every action that we took to be in love um, because that was the nonviolence commitment. And when I met Marshall Rosenberg, he had been working on uh, this communication process to me, which is direct action in love because it involved self-empathy, empathizing with others, getting to a common connection of universal human needs so that people could return to seeing each other human, even in the most, intense moments of conflict um, when it's the hardest for us to see each other as human and be able to relate to come to a resolution and a reconciliation for whatever the problem is. Well, could one of you give a uh, 
overview of nonviolent communication? Basically, it, it came, it comes from, as Catherine just said, from Marshall Rosenberg, um, the founder of um, nonviolent communication. He basically started his life, um, and you know, he sort of talks about the story of. Uh, landing in Detroit during the race riots of 1943 and noticing a really big difference between what was going on at his home and, you know, the violence and the, um, the death and of many people, um, during these race riots and also the difference between what he was witnessing there and then, and experiencing at school as a result of his name and the fact that he was he, you know, his name was telling people that he had a Jewish background, um, and also noticing the difference between that and what was happening as he, you know, watched his family care for his grandmother, and the beauty and the care and the love that went into the care into the care of his grandmother, and it started a question for him of how could people respond so differently, and so he pursued a life of looking at this question, um, became a psychologist, trained psychologist, and was pretty dissatisfied with what he found in the world of psychology and was finding very different results than what he noticed his fellow psychologists were finding. And pretty much was just by evidence looking at what seems to support connection and compassionate giving and us communicating and living from the heart and what seems to uh, distract us and disconnect us um, from that compassionate heart and respond very violently. Um, so he developed, you know, what is a model, which, you know, it, it's it's never anything until it's put into practice and really used from the heart, um, yeah, a language he calls nonviolent communication. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, nonviolent communication really contains uh, nothing new. It's... It's based on historical principles of nonviolence. And it's, it's the natural state of compassion that we can have that, you know, really is the meaning of nonviolence. Marsha Rosenberg was very specific in choosing the word nonviolence, which is the only English translation we have of the word ahimsa, which is what Gandhi was speaking to in his movements around having no presence of violence, not even within our own heart. Um, so what we're striving for is this moment of connection where we have the ability to empathize with ourselves, empathize with the other person, and create a quality of connection based on the common human needs. Because needs are something that are common to all humans. And I would extend that to all animals, that all beings, um, the organization that Kate and I both work with, Play in the Wild, um, that, you know, we, we have T-shirts that we print that the youth and the families and we love to wear, and, it's, and we sit right on it, to protect and to serve all beings, all life, all needs, because there is this, these qualities, these values that like trust, safety, respect, uh, that we can name, that we can give name to that exists within us. We can see that it exists within other living beings. And then the, the game, really the game becomes how do we best take care of all these needs? 
how do we how do we then begin to make decisions and strategies that serve all these needs you mentioned the organization play in the wild that you're both involved in can you just give a brief overview of that yeah play in the wild started over a decade ago um, as kind of an international answer to some of the work that I had been doing in California I um, mentioned that I ran a school for 11 years that was a proper academic program with the baseline philosophy of nonviolence, where the students practiced nonviolent communication, um, direct action and love, and practices of, of nonviolence on a daily basis while they were also doing their academics. Um, over uh, 10 years ago, I met a woman named Melanie Whitham, who was working up in Quebec, Canada, and we both decided that our passions really fell in the same place around nonviolence and and wilderness skills, taking kids into the wild. Um, and then just a year later, we met Jesse Weens, who um, who also shared our passion for mindfulness. And and so we've been developing over these years an international multicultural program that offers trainings and living in, in the immersion of nonviolent communication, mindfulness, and what it is to, to be interdependent with all life. Uh, so we engage wilderness skills, um, and so we actually go out on canoe quests for nine days. So we'll go backpacking up mountains for nine days, and we've run programs in Japan, Australia, Different parts of Canada, different parts of the U.S., um, and we've been taking the United Kingdom, and we've been working with families, youth, educators, um, and children. Um, so you take children out into the wild, do canoe trip, get people to connect with wilderness, yeah? I would say the wild within and the wild without. Um, you know, we have two programs for youth, um, and we've run both in in Australia with Kate. Um, I'm forget what year did we connect, Kate? Oh, um, it was about uh, 2000, uh, 20, 2007, I think, 2007. And so we, we've been uh, working with Kate ever since, and Kate's uh, traveled to other countries to work um, on these programs as well as um, hosting programs in Australia. Um, and so... It's about getting kids in the wild, but it's about getting getting us together as humans in a multicultural setting. Um, sometimes we'll have as many as seven languages that are first languages, and getting us all to return to really this original language that Marshall Rosenberg has named as nonviolent communication, because really this language we were all born with. We, we already know how to connect with ourselves, connect with another human, and build that bridge of empathy for understanding and clarity to to find the strategies that really serve all life. But we've all been well-trained in criticism, blame, judgment, um, and how to disconnect. So we have to move past that training to reconnect and relearn or as one of our students once said, oh, this is easy. All you have to do is remember. 
and just remember what the skills we were born with. Empathy isn't something that you have to acquire. It's something we're born with, and we need to develop and nurture, just like we would develop reading or develop riding a bike, swimming. My background's coming from uh, the point of view of an animal advocate, and I, I myself, like many other advocates who are involved in political causes, get very passionate, and we, from time to time, get very angry. Animal rights activists often have seen too many slaughterhouse videos. They have seen what goes on in experimental laboratories to animals and factory farms. And they are often, quite rightly, uh, angry about this. Now, what's the problem, from a communication point of view, for activists getting angry? Well, you're angry because you care. I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing a problem with anger in and of itself. When we're passionate... Um, we are accessing something that we're deeply connected to and we care about. Um, where, where the challenge lies is you get to ask yourself, is how I'm communicating, is how my action that I'm taking, is it actually effective? Is it meeting the needs of the activists? Is it meeting our needs as we're, as we're moving into the confrontation? Is it meeting the needs of the actual animals that, that we're actually trying to have a voice for? And are we meeting the needs of the people that are also on the receiving end of our action or our communication? So we begin to take a look at assessment, not whether we should be angry or not should be angry, or getting an, a value judgment on the emotion or getting a value judgment on on what it is that we're, we're striving for, we begin to simply look at, is what we're doing actually effective? Is it really, is it really coming to the results that we're hoping for? Is it really, and are those results temporary or is that really long term for the needs of everyone involved? Very much, can I just add there, Catherine, very much including ourselves because one of the biggest things that I, you know, have seen and witness and hear about often is the burnout, burnout factor of activism because the tasks look so big and the emotion is so high, which is, it, it kind of should be, it's kind of, it's very alarming what go, what's going on on the planet and I want, I would always want us to be able to be awake to it, to be willing to respond and to be, be willing to hear you know, our anger, our outrage, and harvest it, really harvest that anger and that outrage to make it as effective, as Catherine says, as effective as possible, including ourselves, our own well-being is part of this very much so. And that's, to me, the very important definition of nonviolence here is it's not about your needs or my needs. It's about our needs. You know, some of them will be the same and some of them might be different, but how can we hold them all together? And, yeah, am I being effective? Am I getting results that I want? Yeah, is my communication supporting more connection and forward, or is it actually having people back off and me burn out, you know, us burn out, yeah. And the way that we can look at that is, is my communication continually drawing a dividing line or is my communication drawing a circle around everyone involved and involving everyone and, and including everyone? Because 
as soon as we get into an argument where we want to only take care of just one or just a few and not include the all, then we're continuing to draw the dividing line instead of drawing the actual circle that exists around all of us. It includes the animals, it includes all beings, it includes all life. And so when our communication is kind of stuck in the parameters of judging, criticizing, blaming, you know, if I walk in and I'm like, you're hostile, I'm not, I've now drawn a dividing line. If I walk in and I say, you're hostile, and I'm being hostile, that's still a dividing line because I'm I'm just stuck in the the parameters of judgment and criticism. What we get to do, and this is one of the things that we can do at any given moment, is take a breath when we know when we're in that judgment. Connect to, okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm telling myself we're all hostile right now. I'm, you know... And that's because I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling impassioned. And we take a breath. And we connect that to what's the actual human need here? Because I'm wanting mutuality and understanding and clarity. And I want to contribute to the lives of these animals. And you can just notice right there that if I walk into the room with the blame you know, you're, you're hostile, you're evil, you're wrong. I'm going to fuel the fight in a way where the fight isn't going to go anywhere except where it's always gone before. If I take that breath and move through those thoughts, connect to the anger, the passion, the sorrow, the despair, whatever the feeling is, and take another breath and drop into the actual human need, understanding, respect, clarity, mutuality, contribution to all life. Then from that place, I can make a decision about the direct action I want to take in nonviolence to, to bring those needs alive and make them clear so that I can bring forward um, what it is that I want, because one of the things in activism that's been really clear to me for 20 years is we're not going to save the world with the same energy she's been raped with. And a lot of times in activism, I see us still in the paradigm where we're coming in with the we're coming in with the same paradigm of judgment, criticism, blame, separation scarcity, scarcity that there's not enough for everyone, that there is a dichotomy somehow, that you're wrong and I'm right. And as long as we stay in that paradigm, I don't trust we actually are going to bring forward the quality of life that we want for ourselves, for our fellow beings on the planet, for for everyone that's involved, because we're all in this together. We, you know, Gandhi once said, you know, we don't make it till we all make it. And we're seeing that become ever, ever more true um, in our world as we're coming to, to great crescendos of these arguments. Hello, you're listening to Freedom of Species. 
Animal Activism on the Airwaves on 855 AM, 3CR Community Radio. This is an interview with Kate Raffin and Catherine Cadden, educators on non-violent communication, and they're discussing how NVC is a benefit to animal advocates. We'll go back to that interview now. Can we still maintain our judgment that there is an opposition or that they are wrong? I wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) And, you know, I say this from a very honest standpoint of, you know, going toe to toe with people who, you know, are, are very easily throwing out their judgments of me or very easily throwing out their judgments about, about what's happening. Um, If, if I'm wanting to make a real change in the world about how things are done, then I'm going to need to bring to that what the change actually is. I can't come into the room and say doing is wrong without also bringing what it is that I would like to have happening differently. Because if I walk in the room and I say, what you're doing is wrong, you're bad, you're evil, well, then all that person has left to do is to defend, no, I'm not evil, I'm not bad. And then all I have left to say is, no, you are bad, you are evil. And then that person, all they have left to say is, no, I'm not bad, I'm not evil. And then all we're doing is the 8,000-year-old war of I'm right, you're wrong. And we've seen where that's gotten us. You know, one of the ways I like to explain this is, you know, you know, if we look on a human level of spiritual expression, that's a need all humans have. We've never started a war because we have the need for spiritual expression. But we've started many wars because I'm going to tell you how you have to pray. And I'm going to tell you how you're expressing spiritually is wrong. And how I'm doing it is right. And then that starts the 8,000-year-old war. So in terms of, of animal activism, when we're, you know, you know, when we're, and we're doing this in environmental activism, we're doing this in places where for so long the belief has been that the animals, the trees, the plants don't have their own voice, which, you know, with my background and beliefs of interdependence, they do have a voice if we're listening because there are, there are needs alive. If, wherever there's live energy, there's, there's needs. And so if we're listening, we're going to, we're going to understand, you know, that they too want all beings to have all their needs met. There isn't, there isn't a place of, of dividing lines, if we look to nature, if we look to animals, there's not a dividing line. In nonviolent communication, we Marshall developed these two uh, symbols, which I actually enjoyed to play with because I think they can clearly, we can clearly see that everyone is trying to communicate needs, no matter what they're doing or what they're saying. But on the receiving end, there's times when the person doesn't actually get what they're talking about. And I like that, um, you know, he utilizes the symbol of jackal as when we're not able to communicate as clearly as we would like, then the needs we're wanting everyone to 
to contribute to. And, you know, if you look at canines, you know, there's this amazing family structure. There's this amazing loyalty and care for one another. Um, you know, I've been a big wolf activist and understand how canines move. So, you know, for someone like me, I can, I can look at growling, biting, barking, snipping, snarling, and I can hear the needs. I can, I can get that, you know, so sometimes in the face of some of a human who's snarling, barking, biting, yelling, got a gun to my face, whatever they've got going on, I can actually, you know, reconnect to myself and hear the needs that are going on. But what is also true is we've, you know, as Marshall Rosenberg discovered, and he kind of playfully called giraffe, um, that there is this way to use our silence. There is this way to come in and use the language of needs, to use the, the vocabulary of needs, to, to then communicate and have possibly a better chance of being heard and understood of the needs we're trying to point to. So the giraffe as a symbol of this communication where we're trying to get to the needs, I find really powerful as well because the giraffe utilizes silence. The giraffe utilizes um, a, a quality of connection that's about utilizing the vocabulary of needs when we're in nonviolent communication and we're in this presence, then we're really trying to articulate and bring forward what is the need, get it to get it to the surface and get it understood. Um, the other thing I like about the giraffe, if you look at the giraffe in nature, when the giraffe is at the watering hole, you know, and a lion sneaks up behind it, it has the ability, the physical ability, to kick with its back leg and actually stun the lion so the lion drops and the giraffe can get away. And what I like about that as a symbol for nonviolence is the giraffe does not turn around and then try to eradicate or kill every lion or get the lion to stop being a lion. It clearly creates safety, a protective use of force that then gets everybody their needs met in that moment. And so I like this because it's not about that that we're not speaking to needs when we're kind of in the jackal voice, when we're in the voice of our screaming and our hollering and our biting and our snarling and our yipping and our howling or our wailing. It's just that that might not be effectively communicating what it is that we'd like to have understood. It might not be making the connection so that we can make the change that we'd like to have. And so we're not trying to get rid of our anger or get rid of all of that. What we're trying to do is assess in the moment. Are we making the quality of connection that is effective enough to communicate the needs that we'd like to have heard, to, to hear the needs that the other person's trying to communicate and get the needs on the table as fast as we can? Because I... I do trust from over 25 years of doing work in nonviolence and activism, whether it's been with animals or the environment or with human rights, that once the needs are on the table and there's a general understanding 
among whoever's looking at them, that then we're going to begin to discover new ways or strategies that work for, for all beings that are in, in that discussion. There's another piece to add there, and that is just that when we talk about it, it can be quite hard to identify the needs of a person whose behavior we're not enjoying. Um, and this is wonderful expression that Martin uh, Marshall used, which was we have an enemy image of another person, and that is that we have blame, criticism, wrongness. We, we, we're, you know, really landing that on them instead of landing it on their behavior, the behavior that we don't enjoy. And there's quite a difference between the two because I can still connect to the human needs behind a person's actions or even that the human is trying to contribute to and not enjoy or condone the behavior. It's not about agreeing with the behavior in any way. It's actually about being connected enough to what it is that's important to me, what needs are running through me and what needs are the, is the person, is the other person trying to meet. And yeah, I, again, I don't need to condone or support the behavior to identify the needs. I can still identify the human being and the needs. And when I do that, the most powerful thing happens, and that is I rehumanize that person. I regain my ability to continue to see them as a human being, which is actually going to increase their ability to see me as a human being. And that's where the, we move from there is a very different place from where we will move um, if I continue to have those enemy images and, you know, connect the human being with their behavior only. Yeah, so. Such an important point, Kate, because that brings forward in my mind the people that I can point to, um, you know, including those of us on Playing the Wild that have been doing some of this frontline work. Um, but uh, a person that comes to mind in the moment of a, a big recent um, activism movement is up in Canada with the tar sands oil and um, trying to stop the pipelines up there and return the native lands to the indigenous peoples. And one of the things that was done was uh, the native, the First Nations people, um, a couple of the leading activists there went and spoke to the labor unions, to the people that would lose their jobs if the pipeline was shut down and said, look, we get that you want to contribute to your families. We get that you want safety and security in your lives. How can we work together? Because that's what we'd like too. And what's the strategy we can begin to look at? Because we don't want we don't want you, your families, to suffer at, you know, at the cost of our families getting what we need. How do we all get what we need? That doesn't like, sound like a, situ a situation where everyone could get everything they needed. And see, Roy, I think this is the tricky bit, because I think that's part of the old paradigm, the kind of, you know, the scarcity paradigm that we believe somehow someone won't get what they need, that somehow needs are in conflict, that somehow if I get what I need, that means they have to give something up. Or if I don't, if that person gets what they need, I'll have to give something up. And as long as we bring that enemy image into our activism, then we're going to continually draw the dividing line. And we won't come to a possible new solution that maybe we or or the other folks never were able to see before. 
So what is it that we want to bring into our activism? What is it that we want to bring into our action and our connection and into the conversation that opens up the possibility of strategies and solutions that include all people, all beings? From my position, I don't at the moment see this as pragmatic, but that's where I am coming from. Uh, for example, I look at a campaign I'm involved in, and that's against horse racing. And there are over 10,000 racehorses bred in Australia that, that are killed every year. And I'm part of a, a group that campaigns against this. The industry calls it wastage, the breeding of racehorses. We campaign, we protest, we use billboards. We've had quite a lot of press coverage in Australia for a small group of people campaigning. Now, we would like the racing industry to stop what it is doing. And we would like it to, at the very least, uh, set a process of donating 1% of betting turnover to rehoming ex-racehorses, or in fact those that are bred and don't actually become racehorses, and not killing them after they are no longer profitable. Now, that's what we would like to occur. For the racing industry, they to do that, so they will be lo losing 1% of their betting turnover. As far as I could see, the only way in, way in which this becomes a win-win situation, they are able to use what they do, if they were to do that, as good publicity for their industry and promote their industry as um, responsible in the fact they were donating 1% of betting turnover. But there are many, many other issues with their industry. We wouldn't want them to use the results of our campaigning to promote their own financial interests by them saying, look, aren't we doing a great job? We're donating all this money so horses aren't any longer shot uh, when they are still doing lots of bad things. And this would be, in, the lo in our opinion, just to... Um, uh, using animal welfare to encourage people to get into horse racing. So in that mentality, I can't see a way where the what I do still consider the opposition to... I couldn't see really see a way in which we both win without them using a financial advantage of maybe advertising propaganda in the doing such a lovely thing for horses. And, well, in this moment, what I'm hearing, Roy, is the integrity, that you're deeply connected to integrity. Um, you know, and only you can tell me if that's what you're connected to. But it's what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that in order to bring forward the strategy that you'd like to present, you also want not only for the strategy to happen of the 1%, um, but there's other things, too, that you'd like to see change. And you'd like to see it done with a sense of connect to the human needs. Using animal welfare. Well, in this moment, what I'm hearing, Roy, is the integrity, that you're deeply connected to integrity. Um, you know, and only you can tell me if that's what you're connected to. But it's what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that in order to bring forward the strategy that you'd like to present, you also want not only for the strategy to happen of the 1%, um, but there's other things, too, that you'd like to see change. And you'd like to see it done with a sense of integrity where that, that they're connected to the same needs that you're connected to as to why they're choosing this strategy. Yes, maybe I'm wanting too much there. I think wanting people to be to their needs is fabulous. <laughs> and, I, and I don't... 
I personally don't think it's too much. Um, I think what it takes is our willingness to to do the you know in in activism. There's a thing we call despair work. Um, that's that's really necessary to do because you know I mean just this last week alone we've had three police shootings. You know it's when you know and we're having to do a lot of despair work so that we can stay on the front lines to end police brutality you know so you know i'm hearing you face the same thing in in what you're to work with that okay we've got this one piece where we think we can we can bring this strategy to the table and we're going to get a bit of movement but we're also going to want this as well and so it's it's about giving space to the amount of despair that comes up when we're witnessing the level of suffering that we're witnessing by choices of actions that we don't agree with so that then we can keep returning to have to have the fight we'd like to have and the fight that I'm hearing you'd like to have is let's sit down at the table and see how is there a way that horse racing can happen that includes the needs of the horses and takes care of them in a way that that they're well cared for and considered and treated um, in a way that that understands their needs as well? Um, that that I can't. I personally don't have a judgment on that. That that's too much to ask for. But I'm hearing what is needing space is that that you are going to be working incrementally um, to make the changes that you'd like to see you know and and you can ask any first nations people in north or south america or any any aboriginal person in australia or any palestinian anyone who's in occupied territory they're gonna they're gonna say to you that this is this is incremental work, you know. This is incremental work where you know they're not going to hand all the land back over to us, and we see a way through that will will include everyone. So what I'm hearing you speak to, Roy, is quite powerful. I'm hearing you already connected to needs of integrity, um, needs of mutuality, of understanding of consideration, of contribution, and getting those on the table, then then you're going to be able to then move incrementally through and create the changes that you'd like to see. That's the way I'm hearing it. Freedom of Species is a show about animals, for animals, listened to by humans. Tune in Sundays, 1 p.m. I'm personally, I don't think, on my point of view, it's one of a position of integrity. I, I just think that there is not necessarily to advantage in a victory that allows an, uh, an industry to then use that victory um, for their own publicity. Well, I'm, I'm hearing, I'm hearing, I'm hearing the pain and the you know, of witnessing the suffering of 
of knowing that the suffering exists and I'm also hearing wanting, wanting others to know that the suffering still exists because I'm guessing there's something in you um, that connects to that if people really understood the suffering that occurred, um, that how could we continue doing this at the expense of life? How could we do this at the expense of, of, of any being experiencing this much suffering? And you are indeed correct. Your ability to uh, read these things about me has been developed through nonviolent communication. It is a testament to its ability to enhance your ability to read people. Roy, I just want to add this thing of its, the sustainability, you know, what, what Catherine was saying about the despair work. It's incredibly important to not do this work alone. Of course, you know that. <laughs> but really sustainably and take the time that it takes to, to, to do the despair work in order to refuel, to connect, to mourn, to deeply mourn. And I guess I just love the, um, the saying, and there's many of them from you know Nelson Mandela and Dr. Martin Luther King, but the one thing that, it, one, one saying that I remember him, him saying here is, you, know, to, you do not need to see the whole staircase in order to take the first step. And that's all we're doing. We're taking the next step and we're taking the next step. And I guess this is, this is this thing of where am I taking that step from? And am I taking it from a place where I'm really connected to my, to what I'm longing for in the world? And I've done my despair work knowing I will make an incremental step today, but it'll be a step. Yeah. It's a very different place than making it, than being up against, you know, all that's wrong and all that I hate and all that you know, and, and blaming it um, on blaming my pain on others' actions. I guess it's really connected to my pain is about what I see happen in the world and it's because I have a need for integrity. It's because I have a need for care and compassion for the creatures we, we dwell with that I, 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 that I, that it's so painful to see the industries that we see. And I guess it's, you know, every victory was won by little, by little, steps on the way you know just looking at the history of of dr martin luther king's work and all the many many thousands of people who worked with him you know the victories weren't obvious day by day same with nelson mandela locked up for 26 years did he know the outcome in the end you know and of course there's a hell of a lot of suffering on the way but how did he how did he survive what was he connected to and these people are connected to vision and we continue to sort of I guess when we do our despair work, it really throws us into the world we'd like to see happen. And to not lose that vision, to be coming from, this is what I want to see happen in the world, this is the needs I really want to walk with, I want to contribute to. Yeah. When I travelled to South Africa and had a tour of Robben Island with Ahmed, who was one of the one of the men that was also arrested the evening with Nelson Mandela, and I asked him, said, you know, I was listening to it live on the radio. Is it true that you all, you know, Nelson Mandela hugged the guards as he was being released? Did you did you all really hug the guards when you were being released? And he said, we all hugged the guards when we were released. Because there was no way out except together. And so when I look at some of the greatest oppressions um, that we've faced as humans, as animals, um, 
you know, there's, there, there is no way out except together. And so when I hear about what you're faced with, Roy, and the activism that you're doing with horse racing, um, then, then you all get to be the ones at the table. How do we get through this together? Because as long as we keep the argument us and them, or that they'll never agree with us, then we'll, we'll keep the argument going. We'll keep the 8,000-year war going. And what we want to do is come to some sense of commonality. And, and in terms of horse racing, as an example, I think of a woman that... Um, that I know that's been studying nonviolence and studying NBC, and um, she actually worked with a smaller um, horse track and was able to get them to transform it um, because when they got into it, you know, that particular small horse track was into it, uh, particularly for the money-making aspects. And when she looked at, like, how do you want to make your money, um, actually horse track wasn't necessarily what they were attached to. And so the track became a place where they started utilizing horses to work with uh, quadriplegic and paraplegic students who, when you put them on the back of a horse, all of a sudden different muscles operate and they awaken. So they got to retire this group of horses. They got to transform. And they got to do something completely different. And the owners still got to make money um, and take their families. And that's, you know, and that's a strategy that I don't think could have got, been gotten to unless an honest connection was made between the person that was wanting to see a change for the animals and contribute to them. But she also wanted to make sure that the owners were contributed to as well, so she was able to get the conversations necessarily um, necessary going to to find the strategy that would meet all the needs. A good and appropriate example, thank you. What I'd like to ask is, uh, I imagine nonviolent communication, it isn't a simple thing to learn, particularly for people, probably like myself, who've got some uh, residual anger, particularly towards some people that hurt animals. How does one go about learning nonviolent communication? Yeah, if you're in Australia, call Kate. <laughs> um, there is one. There's, there's, I mean, many, many trainers in Australia are offering different um, trainings. You know, we have people working with it within their jobs in disability care. We have people offering public trainings. Um, I do that myself. Um, also, I do. I do despair circles. I, you know, offer these to small groups of people around me here in Sydney. Um, and but many of us are willing to travel, and there are some trainers in Melbourne as well. Um, the best way to look up what's going on in Australia is um, NVC, as in Nonviolent Communication, Australia dot com. Uh, that's where we're all listed, and many of the trainings are there. There's also wonderful programs. Um, running internationally um, and a lot of wonderful YouTube uh, <laughs> clips of Marshall, um, you know, just giving a flavor of, of this work and, you know, we're using it on the ground in Play in the Wild with youth, um, kids and educators and 
uh, yeah, there's also wonderful resources. There's books, um, but it's really putting it into practice in community and with other people that is really the, so one of the most valuable ways I learn. Um, so there's many ways to, to go about it. Um, a lot of it, most of it's available on the web. Um, yeah, Catherine, you want to add? You can also, <clears throat> there's there's online programs that Play in the Wild offer, and also uh, ZenVC, Z-E-N-V-C dot org. Um, we offer uh, online programs that can work directly with um, activism and specific uh, to what they're they're wanting to utilize and do with it um we've worked with uh animal activists climate change activists environmentalists um um in different in different organizations that are trying to end racism um colonialism decolonization so you know it's you know, one of the things I'm, I'm kind of hemming and hawing on is <clears throat> nonviolent communication, at least from my experience, is is something that I'm in the practice of. Um, it's not something I go and learn and now I have it. Um, it's one of the practices of nonviolence of what I've I've committed my life to. Um, and I say practice when I use the word practice, I mean that that I'm putting my best effort forward in any given moment with this practice, with this practice of bringing needs to the table, of identifying needs, of empathizing and with the other person and not letting my enemy images create more separation. Um, so I'm, I'm constantly in a practice, you know, of, of this communication, of, of, using, of using my communication to be part of my direct action in love. So there's it's an it's an ongoingness of um, what I'm bringing, and you know, and depending on how you know, depending on if if I've done my despair work, and you know, the grief in my heart for that day has had its space, and I've had my lunch, and I've had a good night's sleep. It's likely my practice is, is going to be, you know, more top notch. <laughs> if I'm not so, if I'm not so well rested, if I'm not so well fed, and I haven't actually taken the time to allow the grief to move through my heart about the suffering I witnessed, I'm probably going to be at the lower end of my game of being able to really listen and bring love, you know, validation and empathy into every action that I take. So. I think that's a place in activism. We get to start being honest with ourselves about um, about how we go about it. That you know, when we take our action, do we want it to be in this the new paradigm that considers needs that that moves with with real empathy and understanding, or do we want to take our actions in the old paradigm that's you know, I'm going to beat myself into submission and make myself get back out there. And, you know, and, you know, I'm going to tell myself, you know, I'm not good enough until I've, you know, ended all wars or, you know, am I using the, am I using the energy of exactly what it is that I'm trying to change to try to motivate myself or am I using my breath? Am I, 
am I actually bringing with me the paradigm that I'd like to see all of us participating in? So I think that's a big, big key in activism. Um, that's a small thing for a small thing. That's a big thing that each of us can begin to do, whether you've taken an NVC class yet or not, is just begin to assess. Am I am I bringing with me the change that I'm wanting to see? Am I bringing with me the shift of consciousness and connection and empathy? You know, if if I'm wanting if I'm wanting particularly in animal activism, if I'm wanting the person I'm talking to to feel the empathy for the animal, then my guess is they're needing to to have an understanding and feel what it is like to receive empathy, to have empathy brought to them, because we're going to access it with what it is that we'd like to see differently. Thank you, Catherine. And thanks, Kate. I think we're going to have to conclude our interview now. But just before we go, Kate, could you repeat that website link? NVC is in Nonviolent Communication, Australia, all one word, dot com, dot au. That's it. Uh, thanks both for your time. Thank you, Roy. Thank Keep up the good work and do your despair work. Get the support you need. And thank you all so much. Yeah, you're doing it for all of us, with all of us. You're listening to Freedom of Species Animal Activism on the Airwaves on 3CR 855 AM. That's concluding our show today, which was an interview with Kate Raffin and Catherine Cadden, both educators in nonviolent communication. Uh, just before we go, I'm going to mention the Animal Activist Forum, which is coming up in two weeks' time on the Gold Coast uh, at the Southport Community Centre. To get tickets, which are selling now, and we'll, uh, you've only got a few more days to get tickets, go to activistsforum.com. And that concludes today's show. Have a great week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.